Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. Momentarily, we will be speaking to Chris Carter, the host of the, I don't use a word like venerable lightly, but he is the host, the longstanding host of the venerable Breakfast with the Beatles show. We'll be talking to him, naturally, about the Beatles at some length. Before we get into that, I want to let you know I do this pod, uh, Patreon-exclusive pod, called Classic Rock albums sure they're classic but are they any good most people have heard these albums a million times i'm not a classic rock guy i might never have listened to it once i honestly think i can tell you i never until this week listened to what some people what many people say is the greatest beatles album of all time i'm speaking of revolver so i did a pod about it i listened to it i have thoughts i'm looking forward to sharing them with you after you enjoy this tully show Come listen to this month's edition of the Classic Rock Pod, Beatles Revolver Edition. I'll leave it free and open to the public. Everybody can check it out at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. That is patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Thanks. Check that out in the here and now. Enjoy the show. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a founding member of Dramarama, both a music and documentary producer, the one-time bassist for Austin Powers. Yes, you heard me. But most importantly, for our present purposes for over two decades, the host of the venerable radio institution, Breakfast with the Beatles, heard locally here in L.A. on KLOS and nationally on Sirius XM. Breakfast with the Beatles taking a well-deserved victory lap for its 40th anniversary. Hello and welcome, Chris Carter. Ah, thank you, Michael, for having me. Yeah, 40 years, Breakfast with the Beatles on in Los Angeles. Hard to believe, but true. I have many questions about that, but before we get there, I have a couple of questions about your distant past. Um, Specifically, uh, I was going to wear my plasmatics shirt today <laughs> but i didn't it just seemed a, it seemed it, it seemed a little cheesy which, given that i knew i was going to ask you about the time you met wendy o williams at a record store that you ran owned can you please tell me and everybody the story i ran it and i owned it michael mm-hmm. uh yeah it was called looney tunes records on route 23 in bucolic wayne new jersey mm-hmm. and uh you know we were just a little record store but we were you know the cool record store in town. You could buy imports and copies of Melody Maker a week after they came out in England. And the other thing we did was we had in-stores, which was, uh, you know, fun for us because we got to get our heroes to come to the Packenack Lake Shopping Center, which was just a trip in itself. So uh, we started out by having Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson there, which were two of our favorites, you know, Mott the Hoople, David Bowie. And once we realized that, you know, big time rock stars will go to your little record store when they have a new record out, you know, because they have to promote it. We got we got on that whole jag and we had the Ramones came and uh, some local bands like Blotto and Uncle Floyd. We were Uncle Floyd headquarters. If you live in New Jersey, you know who Uncle Floyd is. Yep. And then we got the Plasmatics to come, which was uh, 
a red letter day for Looney Tunes because, you know, again, we were in this little, you know, shopping center. There was like a, you know, a, a, a hobby store and a liquor store and a delicatessen and a drug store. And all of a sudden, this big white convertible Cadillac pulls into the Pakenac Lake shopping center. And there was Wendy O. Williams with her electrical tape on certain parts of her body and uh richie stotts and the rest of the band it was quite a scene they wanted to get us you know thrown out of there but they never did yeah so the plasmatics were there and that was a that was an interesting day yeah. i'm really impressed the plasmatics were able to swing getting a convertible i never felt like they were a, a huge money-making outfit i wonder if they didn't skip breakfast to be able to get the the cow and i, I and know. i respect that they had props you know, not many people brought them to an in-store, but the plasmatics went the extra mile for you. And um, I gather you once produced a musical track from uh, film legend Tracy Lords. You really dig deep. I like that. Please yeah. tell me everything. At Cemetery 2, it was. I don't remember who hired me, but I played bass on incidental music, you know, throughout the film. And uh, when I got to the studio, they said, oh, the guitar player is a, a, a studio musician. You may have heard of his name, is Steve Hunter. I'm like, Steve Hunter from Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal and Alice Cooper's, you know, albums. And that's Steve Hunter. So I got to play with Steve Hunter. And then I found out that Tracy Lords was going to sing a song. And well, she did. And we actually uh, we went out a few times, Tracy and I. She actually sang Happy Birthday to me at the Viper Room. Uh, I have a picture of it I could show you, but since this is just audio, I don't have to do it. Um, yeah. So yeah, she was, uh, she was interesting, Tracy, nothing like you think she would be. I interviewed her one time, uh, several years ago, I think it was for the, the Crybaby re-release. Yeah. Um, so that was, your, you had your happy birthday, Mr. President, yeah, moment, but Tracy yeah, Lord's exactly. Marilyn Monroe. And I, I've got the pictures to prove it. Not bad for a kid from Wayne. <laughs> Yeah, you know. All right. And she so was in our video too. She was in the Drama Rama video. For oh, really? Drama Land. She was the star of the video. Yeah. That's a that's a pretty decent claim to fame in and of itself. Thank you. Uh, so let's talk about the Beatles. Since Breakfast with the Beatles is celebrating its uh, its fortieth anniversary, um, how were you? personally introduced to the Beatles music. I know you're a little young to have gotten in on the ground floor of, of Beatlemania. And I guess more to the point, how and when and why did they become something like an all-consuming passion for you? Bad for me? Yeah. Um, well, I guess my, you know, earliest days with the Beatles came when uh, my mom and I were shopping at the ShopRite food store in Wayne, New Jersey. And they had a record section a very small one but if you remember they food stars would sell records in the, in the 60s they always had a little bin you know very oddly placed kind of like they do now and you know you go to whole foods and there's a vinyl section next to the broccoli where you can buy classic albums for 39 dollars um but my rubber soul was three dollars and 49 cents and i don't know why we got that album or why my mom allowed it i was seven and a half and it just ended up in the cart, you know? And if you remember the U.S. rendition of Rubber Soul, there's no real hits on it, you know? There were no hits on it. Like Sgt. Pepper, there's no singles. Um, 
So I didn't know any of the songs. I don't know how come I got it, but it was my very first album. I owned a album before I ever owned a 45 seven inch single. So that was my introduction to the Beatles. And, you know, if you know the Rubber Soul album, like I know you do, it, it's kind of a mature Beatles album. You know, you had Michelle and In My Life and Girl, and it's kind of sophisticated. It's not necessarily the mop top sound of uh, Meet the Beatles. So that was my introduction to them. And I, and I love that album. And to this day, when people ask me, you know, Chris, what's your favorite Beatles album? I always say the American Rubber Soul. That's it. You know, and I'm not a big fan of the capital American albums now that we kind of know how the Beatles intended you to hear them. And they were just, you know, kind of bastardized versions of two or three albums all put together sometimes. But they got it right with the American Rubber Soul. And I don't know if it's because it was my first album ever. You, know, you have a place in your heart for things you own first. But uh, yeah, so that was my introduction to the Beatles. I didn't see them on the Ed Sullivan show, as you pointed out. I was missed it by that much, you know. Uh, I was probably in bed at the time, you know. I was four. So yeah, my big, you know, introduction to the Beatles visually, I guess, was... Uh, magical mystery tour and even more than that the movie let it be because i saw that by myself you know at 11 years old at the preakness shopping center in wayne new jersey and uh you know it was a big deal to get to go to a movie by yourself but i can't believe now that i think back that my mom would let me take my bike to the preakness movie theater lock it up watch a movie in the afternoon and go home you know and i had to cross the hamburg turnpike that was a big deal you know um but that was really, that was my Ed Sullivan show, watching uh, the Let It Be movie by myself, because I kind of took it all in, you know. Why does Ringo have a towel on his snare drum? Why, you know, I just got to watch everything uh, as a kid. It was very impressionable. I'll bite. Why did Ringo have a towel on his snare drum? It made it get that Ringo, you know, that sound when Ringo is kind of a muffled, you know, something, you know, songs like that. He would... Uh, he would muffle his snare at times with a with a towel. Oh, that so, makes sense. Yeah, because the typical Ringo, I'm not a drum, I'm not a gear guy at all. Which not, I think, you, you lose the harshness. Of course, of the, yeah, the, 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 attack, the, the real you know? the snap on it. Yeah, he didn't do it all the time. It was just, but that was a. It was, it was very interesting to me. You know, it just I never kind of like you just thought it was interesting. You know, like why why is that there? You know, your mind reels, and later in life you. When you're making a record, you know, 20 years later, you're like, try that towel on there. Let's yeah, I just, th I just thought of something. Stick a towel <laughs> on there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I knew I was going to be talking to you. So I've been thinking about the Beatles and I've been thinking about the show. And it occurred to me that not only, I, I can't think of another radio show that's similar to Breakfast of the Beatles in its scope and its uh, longevity. Maybe I'm just not aware of, of, of something. And I was like, well, why Why is that? Why the Beatles? And the first simple answer is, by general consensus, they're far and away the best band that ever was. Like, I, I get that. But if Breakfast with the Beatles could be around for, you know, decades and counting, it would seem that there's other acts who could, in theory, support a similar show. There could be Supper with the Stones or what have Brunch you. Brunch with Bowie. Yeah, sure. but they just... You have to have a catalog, you know. Um, right, but but I think there's more to it. I was trying to really figure out, oh, like, yeah. to me, a Stones radio show is going to appeal to Stones 
fans and kind of niche stones super fans there is this universality to the beatles and we all sort of know it but you've spent a lot of time living in it and thinking about it what is it that elevates them beyond just being very good yeah why why is it the beatles and everyone else yeah well you know people always ask why were the beatles you know so good at what they did you know to put it in simplest terms and the answer is if you look back say at the Beatlemania, Beatlemania era, right? So 64, 63 in England, 65, 66. They were the only entertainers that had an audience that was seven, eight, nine years old. And at the exact same time, they had an audience that was 15, 16, 17 years old. And at that exact same time, there were music scholars there were adults there were radio station program directors that were in their 30s and 40s that all loved the same group which is really hard to find in, in any entertainment any aspect of the entertainment business if you find a movie for instance that seven-year-olds love right chances are 17 year olds are not going to love that movie because it's a movie that seven-year-olds love right but the Beatles had seven-year-old fans and 17-year-old fans at the exact same time, which was unheard of. The Rolling Stones, for instance, you know, they had a set demographic. If you went and see, if you went and saw the Rolling Stones live in concert, to this day, if you go see the Rolling Stones live in concert, you do not see young kids. You don't see families at the Stone show. If you go see Paul McCartney, in concert you'll see little kids with their moms and dads you'll see a yuppie you'll see you know every aspect of society is there every age group is there senior citizens families kids people in their 30s and 40s and that's what the beatles did they had that cross section where they were cool to every age group which again is unheard of you know i mean it just Black Sabbath fans were a certain, you know, they were they were guys that were, you know, 14, 15, 16. There weren't 40-year-old women that were into Black Sabbath. There may be now, <laughs> but in the in the time, you know, in the day. So I think that's what it was. They had this cross-section. And on top of the music being accepted by everyone, they were loved as individuals by the same age group, which was everything from young kids to old people. You watched A Hard Day's Night, you found them entertaining, funny, interesting, charismatic, whatever it is. You know, they had all these different levels to them. And I guess that's the answer. You know, it was a larger cross-section of acceptance. Yeah, I mean, obviously you- Wasn't well, just in England either. You no. Know? That's another thing. People are huge in England, you know, Talk to Benny Hill or Cliff Richard or, you know, there's people that are just gods over there. But in America, it doesn't translate. That was the other thing. They translated across the ocean and in Japan. I mean, you go look at the Beatles in Japan in 1960. You're like, wow, they loved them and they don't even know what they're saying. You know, so it was uh, it was quite unique. To, to yeah. Those. I'm after I speak to you today, I'm planning on doing a podcast that's like a deep dive on revolver. I'm actually not like a huge, huge Beatles guy. I'm a big music 
person and you know you can't you can't be interested in music and not be interested in the beatles and one of the many right. many many things that struck me about revolver was um you know reading the wiki while i'm listening to stuff with my kids and the song yellow submarine was a, like just to pick one example out of a million a conscious attempt to hey we should put a we should do another like kid song basically and mm. and it, and it's just naturally going to be fun because we're a fun funny we're fun people and kids like fun and i'm like now let me think if you go through if we make some sort of list of the top 10 rock bands of all time our lists are probably not going to be all that different we're going to be talking about the stones and zeppelin and the who and pink floyd and what have you they have no kids songs. it's unfathomable <laughs> to think that anybody could be at the pinnacle of success commercially and critically and say not let's make something that kids like let's make a kid's song with our drummer who is essentially such a natural born children's performer he will one day host a children's show and it will not only succeed wildly it will also be taken totally seriously by the rock establishment when you there's so many things that are so crazy it's like dissecting michael jordan's basketball game there's so right. many crazy things right. how you did they do how did they write a song for kids that ended up being a psychedelic and cool recording soundtrack to an animated you know psychedelic journey if you will that's how they balanced it you know it was for kids but was it you know that's what the beatles always gave you you didn't get the hundred percent. It was for kids. There was always the twist. Is it for kids? It's, you know, and if you check out the new revolver box set that came out about that song, you brought up yellow submarine, which I think everyone always thought was kind of a Paul song written for Ringo again, like you said, to be fun, you know, for the kids. But when you get that box set, we all learned something. And I even learned something, which is, you know, in 2023, a, a huge statement, you know, to make for the Beatles, because you kind of know everything by this time. But you find out that Yellow Submarine was really more of a John Lennon song. And it was a kind of a dour, dark John Lennon song. He's singing about, you know, this town he lives in. And it's like, and you hear it on an acoustic guitar, and it's completely different. You're like, whoa, whoa. They turned that into that which is even more interesting to see where, you know, the origins, if it was just written to be specifically for kids, then, okay, you can look at it that way. But then you find out that it was kind of a darker John Lennon song that they changed and it, the progression, it be, you know, we know the finished product. So I find that really interesting too, about the Beatles, how they, they could do something like that, you know, and, uh, you know, you hear how it ended up, which is on, fascinating to me. On the wiki, uh, it said that the singer Donovan actually contributed to, was in the room yeah, writing I, the lyrics, yeah. right? And that his take on it, I don't know if he was, if they told him this or if he just sort of, this was what his assumption was the scrutiny that they were living under. The Beatles lived in a yellow submarine where they were stuck in this little capsule with, you know, looking out at the world, staring back right. at them, which is a... Another totally valid way of looking at you. Right. I listen to, I have children. I listen to a lot of children's music. Does not, most does not bear this sort of scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, Chris, how do you keep coming up with episodes? Um, are, are you really not a little bit sick of talking about the Beatles at this point? What is, what is this week's show about? Or what, what is your daily show for Sirius XM about today? 
Um, well, today is a friends and family Friday. Of course. Uh, as, as we do every Friday. I try to, you know, with the serious show being we do it Monday through Friday, that's a lot of shows, you know. Mm. So I try to at least give myself a starting point, you know. So on Mondays, it's a it's a Macca Monday, all McCartney Monday. So it's Beatles songs sung by Paul, solo songs, wing songs. You wouldn't even know it if you just turned it on, it to, you know, after you realize, oh, wait, all these songs are sung by Paul, you know. So I do that on on Mondays. I do a, a two for Tuesday, which is an old cliche, stupid FM thing. But I do it with a little bit more, you know, thought behind it. So I do theme couplings of, of songs. Uh, they could be anything. Ringo Underwater, you know, you get Yellow Submarine and Octopus's Garden. I just pair up songs. We have a spin the wheel Wednesday, which is full of ca- a wheel full of categories. So, you know, it'll land on, uh, you know, the fifth Beatle. Who's the fifth Beatle? Is it George Martin? Is it Pete Best? Is it, you know, Billy Preston? And I put sets together that match that. Um, of course, we are very cognizant of the birthdays. If someone's birthday, there's the anniversary release of all the Beatles albums, all the Beatles singles, what they did today in Beatles history. So I look at all that before I put a show together. And, you know, it's basically 20 songs an hour, 60 songs a day times five. So that's my usual week. And then I do a uh, British Invasion show on the weekends, which is 80 songs. And then I do the live KLOS show on Sunday mornings. So, you know, my Average week is handpicking about 460 songs and back announcing each one and making sure I have everything correct on all 460 of those songs. And then I do it again the week after. <laughs> I just keep doing it. Yeah. So, oh, right. Uh, I imagine you have a number of fact checkers in your audience. You've got to be right about this stuff. Yeah. I, you know, between my producer and myself, and at this point, you know, we're pretty fact checked out, you know? It's yeah, like, sure. Um, but, you will find yourself when you do that many back reads and things, you'll find you'll surprise yourself by saying something completely wrong that you know is right. Like from the, there you go from Abbey road, 1965. (laughs) Louise will say, you just said 65 instead of 69. I go, no, why would I say 65? But that stuff does happen occasionally. So I, I find that interesting that you can actually say things that you know are incorrect and it comes out of your mouth and you don't even notice it, which is scary sometimes. What, uh, what, what, in, a, in a macro sense, what have you learned about the, the Beatles over all this time, spending so much time? You obviously were a super fan when you showed up, but you've been so deeply immersed. In what way, if you had to pin it down, ha, uh, pin it down has your understanding of the music uh, and the band and the individuals evolved? Well, I think, I notice something that is really the essence of what made the Beatles successful. Um, and that is that they literally, and I know a lot of people use that word too much, but they did literally, they changed everything about themselves every two years, right? You had the mop top R&B loving Beatles of, you know, 62 and 63 and into 64. And then, you know, they became a different band. They they were they were a folk band of sorts. There were acoustic guitars everywhere, and you got you know Beatles for Sale and Rubber Soul. They were a different band, and then they actually created the for the first time in their career their own music because prior to Tomorrow Never Knows and Revolver and 
Sgt. Pepper, they were mimicking music that they loved and they just mimicked it better than anybody else. So they loved Smokey Robinson and they loved the blues and Larry Williams and they wrote songs, you know, cut by, you know, that mold and, and, and they did great job of it. Same thing with the folk music. They loved Dylan and they loved, you know, Pete Seeger and they, they respected folk music and they wrote great folk songs, but they didn't invent the genre. It wasn't until, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows and the entire Sgt. Pepper album did they create their own music, which was psychedelic music, because prior to the Beatles, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows, there was no psychedelic music. They weren't mimicking their favorite psychedelic bands to do Sgt. Pepper. They actually created their own sound, which was the first time they had ever done that. Again, they were just always kind of imitating what they liked. So, you know, when you start putting it in that kind of a perspective, then that's what I've learned about them, that they were very cognizant, very astute of changing what they did to the point that it wasn't even the same band. Because when you're listening to Tomorrow Never Knows, you got to realize it was only three years before that, you know, that they were singing, I want to hold your hand. And, you know, do you want to know a secret? Completely different band. I mean, you can't even, if you came from another planet and played them Tomorrow Never Knows and, you know, do you want to know a secret? You would never think it was the same group of people. It doesn't even, you know sound remotely the same and then they would keep doing that so that's what they did from the beginning of their career you know you listen to michelle and that doesn't sound like twist and shout same band and then you listen to you know bet being for the benefit of mr kite that doesn't sound like michelle and then when the white album came out they completely abandoned all psychedelia and said we're going to be a stripped down rock and roll band again but not the kind of rock and roll band we were in 63 they were a different band and again, they were more influenced when it came to the White Album by other bands again. They were starting to be influenced by other bands. They were influenced by Cream. They were influenced by that sort of a rock. That's why you got Helter Skelter and your blues. They were, you know, rock was kind of heavier rock was in fashion. So they, they started to, again, go back to what they did prior to Sgt. Pepper and pick up what the other folks were doing. Uh, so that's kind of what I've learned by, you know, just analyzing the music and how they dressed and why they did that. They always reinvented themselves. And I think that's how that longevity, you know, occurred. Because if you look at the Dave Clark five, for instance, who started out right at the same time, you know, and a lot of those bands, they didn't evolve. And the ones that didn't evolve got left behind. And the ones that tried to evolve, like say the Hollies, you know, they started out with the Beatles and, hey, all right, we'll do the psychedelic thing. Hey, we can do King Midas in reverse. You know, they they at least tried to do what the Beatles did, but it's hard because, you know, you have to reinvent yourself and up the ante a little bit. You kind of get, keep getting better. And that was the other thing the Beatles would do. They consistently got better <laughs> which again isn't always the case with a lot of our favorite artists over the years you see the peaks and the valleys you know they ended with abbey road which you know hands down was their finest production work the band never sounded better than on that album and they kind of just you know put it all together to go out the door and they also ended with, you know, the end and everything on side two, even though Let It Be came out after. It was a perfect finale to the 1960s. They really did a great job of nipping it up and, you know, 
of course it always adds a bit of a you know <laughs> that that let it be came out after you know kind of and it does it ruins the the perfection of it all because wait let it be came out after Abby Roddy it's like confusing but not in their minds because they did let it be before that and, you know but what a way to end you know they end with three guitar solos in the end it's a perfect uh perfect ending to a career I gather you conducted the last interview with uh, the George Harrison ever did for the all things must pass uh, 30th anniversary what is what's the first thing that comes to mind when you remember that well that he was healthy after being sick and then he got sick again so it was this interim where he was like he beat the cancer yeah he was making the rounds and he was at capitol and they had a room at capitol records right for all the employees that wanted to get something signed by george so i walked by this room and it was like it was sick it was just full of like there was basketballs and surfboards like they wanted George, sign my surfboard. I mean, it was like a hundred things. I felt so bad that he had to go in there and sign all this stuff. People's guitars, you know, their shoes, you know, it was crazy. And yeah, he was making a comeback. He was he was out and about. And then uh, and it turned around after. It's kind of sad. Sure, of course. Um, you know, it's pure speculation, but it seems like nobody... With very few exceptions, nobody didn't reunite. Um, in your best guess, you know, sort of knowing the guys, if you do, if John Lennon had lived, do you think some sort of reunion would have inevitably happened? And if so, what might that have looked like? Because even by the end, they were such... They, it would have been hard for them to just go, let's just go do the, the Eagles thing and go take the money and do a live tour because so much of their stuff got maybe easier to reproduce live in the 90s than it was in the 60s, but still uh, still not as simple as, uh, you know, plugging in a Rickenbacker and one, two, three, four. Would they have reunited? And, and what do you think that might have? Well, they like? did reunite without John. So that leads to some of that speculation because the three of them got together. Yeah, what do you what do you think of those songs? Again, I, I'm the worst. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. I know a lot of Beatles fans don't love those songs. I like the songs they did for the. Oh, I, no, I, I like them quite a bit. I know I know people don't like the Jeff Lynne touches in the production, and I get that. No, I mean for what it was, it was quite amazing, really. Yeah. You know, um, when you think about it, uh, three Beatles got together and you know worked on a John Lennon song. Uh, doesn't get better than that but to answer your question the fact that the three of them did get together leads you to believe that you know if john was the missing link there that he would have definitely come around um for sure i mean i definitely think they would i don't think they would have necessarily toured because i think that's where they might have been if they were nervous about ever you know not looking perfect that might be the the place that might happen, but I think they would feel a hundred percent comfortable in the studio together. And then maybe, you know, if they would record something, they felt confident enough to, to play live. Yeah. But you know, Paul and Ringo would do it hands down. Yes. You can just tell by what they're doing now, you know, the fact that they're out there, they don't need, think about it. 
Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, do they need to be out there working so hard? I mean, they're working their butts off. No, they don't need it. They can sit home 10 lifetimes the money they have. But the reason they do it is because they love it. They really love it. Paul especially loves it. You know, imagine going out of your house every day of your life, right? And everybody waves at you. Michael, hey, hey. Everybody knows you. Everybody loves you everywhere you go. There's a smile on your face. Everybody wants to shake your hand. I mean, why would you want to stay home? <laughs> you know, it's like he likes that. He enjoys that. He's always been a guy who enjoyed being in the public. He was Paul was the guy that would, you know, when the Beatles were in Hamburg, you know, he was the guy talking to the club owner. Hey, we're the Beatles, you know, we'll, we'll, what time should we start? You know, John and George were, you know, off somewhere. They didn't care about talking to the club owner, but Paul did. You know, Paul was the guy. He was he was the friendly Beatle. Every band needs the one guy who will actually talk yeah. to the club promoter ahead of time. Did you hear if the- you ever meet If you ever meet Paul, he makes you feel like he really cares about you for the one and a half minutes he's going to give you mm-hmm. his attention. But during that one and a half minutes, he really, you know, oh, Breakfast of the Beatles, oh, yeah, the Rolls Royce of Beatles, hey. And then he moves on. Yep. But he'll at least acknowledge your, and then you live with that for the rest of your life. <laughs> Did you hear the, the 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 they did the AI vocals to 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 DH his voice so to speak for he did the song new I again I have kids watch cloudy with a chance of meatballs two a hundred times before I was like hold on a second there's a Paul McCartney song in this actually terrific children's movie um, I wasn't able to get my hands on I know it kind of gets pulled down as, as as quick as it goes up but you seem like a, a guy with means that actually out of I have I don't go that deep on Paul's solo output. That to me is like a decent Beatles song that he randomly cooked up in like 2010 and allowed to oh, put yeah, in a children's movie. There's lots of those. There's lots of those. You know, Ringo uh, for a long time was making great Beatle records with Mark Hudson, who was a, uh, one of the Hudson brothers, who was Ringo's record producer for some time. And gosh, you know, Ringo made a couple albums, Ringo Rama and one called Choose Love, that were, you know, every song was like a great melodic great hooky Beatles song, you know? Um, yeah, they're still very capable, these guys. <laughs> Are you in the camp of um, the Beatles never wrote or recorded or released a bad song? Or would you concede that there might be a couple of misfires? Oh, there? no, there's a, there's tell me what you see. There's like under the radar, radar excuse me, mm-hmm. Beatles songs that, that, you know, are definitely not five star recordings, you know? Um, there's some filler and you know what the filler is. You know, hold me tight. There's songs that are, uh, well, Paul used to describe them as work songs. Work song is a song, an album track. That's not a single. It's something we play live. It's something we knock out. That's got the, you know, all the characteristics of a normal Beatles song, but you know, there were song little child. There's a lot of songs like that, that just fill the space that kind of fit the bill at the time that, you know, we're not, necessarily classic how how about how about in the second half of their career when they were just a studio band um you know there's there's a couple of songs a lot of the cover songs you know um were not necessarily needed at the point in their career you know when they were still like covering up to 65 you know they were still doing dizzy miss lizzie and like bad boy um which didn't really need to be because they were writing, you know, in my life at that time. So they didn't, they didn't need to be covering, you know, Larry Williams songs. But um, I think once you got to uh, 
rubber sole, it was pretty much perfection after that. You know, of course, and again, you can find songs on the White Album, like, you know, Why Don't We Do It in the Road or Wild Honey Pie or, but they were put in there in context of everything else. It wasn't like, listen to Wild Honey Pie. It's the greatest song we ever wrote. It's part of 30 songs. So it makes up the mixture, you know, it's part of it. So I think you can't look at those kind of songs and isolate them for not being, you know, a day in the life. It's part of the whole vibe of the record, you know, ups and downs and peaks and valleys musically. If Yeah, they're pretty perfect after Rubber Soul. Uh, if you were going to be um, marooned on a desert island and I would only allow you to take songs that were primarily Paul songs or primarily John songs, which do you Beatles think? songs? Yes, 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 yes. I lean heavily to the John songs. Okay. And I don't do it consciously. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just go down the line and say, you know, I'm only sleeping. Yeah. Girl. Yeah. You know, Dear Prudence. Yeah. Sexy Sadie. Yeah. All my favorite Beatles songs end up being written by John. Um, and I totally respect Paul. And I think, you know, Eleanor Rigby's brilliant. But it's not one of my favorite Beatles songs, you know. Um, whereas Sexy Sadie is one of my favorite Beatles songs. Cry Baby Cry. All the White Album John Lennon songs I, I worship. You know, they're all great. And uh, I don't do it purposely. It just, it just kind of ends up that way. And let me just mention the Desert Island. Now, I always have a problem with this because mm -hmm. okay. that desert yes. isn't surrounded by water. Deserted mm. island, I think, is the origin of it, but no one says deserted island ever. They say desert island, desert island discs, de desert island. You're right. If, if no, you're no. surrounded by water, you wouldn't be in a desert necessarily well yeah i mean salt water changes that a little bit i think we typically understand that okay. we're in we're okay. in the ocean no but your point is well taken and i typically i typically expect more from the british and they're the ones who've really i know i know cemented they have shows this. called that. i yeah. know i know yeah yeah I know. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I always wonder i always wondered if it started out at deserted island mm -hmm. and then it morphed into desert island i just yeah. No, no, you're and it's funny because at this point I kind of picture I have this Looney Tunes picture in my head of a desert island where there's sort of sand with maybe a couple of palm trees coming out of it, but I don't think yeah. that those islands <laughs> exist in nature. They're typically fairly lush, not deserts at all. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's why I always wondered if it if it was deserted and then it kind of, you know, it's like when you when you say something, you know, you play telephone and then it becomes, you know. Yeah, I, I know exactly. You, you, you've you've just changed my life in a, in a, in a small in a small way. I appreciate That's what you. I'm here for. Michael. I appreciate you pointing that out. Hey, if you, a couple more questions. If you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in Beatles history, don't just say the day they met. What would it be? In any moment in Beatles history, yeah. What would it be? Oh my God, I have to think about that. Can I come back and answer that while I think about it? Yes, while you ask absolutely. Question? I'll ask you something okay. else. So okay. I know you're okay. also a, a collector. You have a bunch of uh, memorabilia. This isn't necessarily a much easier question, but I can see okay. you're surrounded by stuff in the background. Do you have a favorite bit of uh, of memorabilia? It doesn't have to be Beatles. That you own something that you think has the most interesting backstory. The thing you are most proud to have gotten your hands on. Sure, my my platinum. All things must pass album that i got for working on all things must pass which i'll quickly tell you about i first bought the album when i was 11 years old and uh 
it was as you recall a box and it would look like a classical record it was a very again mature record for 11 year old i kind of grew into it but i was always fascinated by this album all things must pass um it had an orange label it was george's look spooky in this poster and i loved all the songs yet again it was a very grown-up album and uh it was like a beetle album and i just love this record and from the time i first purchased it in 1970 to today i guess every record store i've ever gone in when i was on tour or wherever i would always look to buy a copy of all things must pass if i could get a different version of it and it came to be that i think i probably have the world's largest all things must pass collection i have over 100 copies from every country with every sticker and blah 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 so as a result of this insane collecting of all things must pass. This is before I worked as the host of Breakfast with the Beatles. I got a call by Capitol Records from Capitol to say we were putting out the 30th anniversary of all, all things must pass. And would you like to work on the project? Because you're such a geek with the all things must pass. So I said, sure. Long story short, I designed a 45 uh, picture sleeve for My Sweet Lord 2000, which they used as a promotional item when they did the television commercial. They had an 800 number, you know, buy all things was passing. If you buy it, you'll get this single. And they had all this great Monty Python am animation and everything. And as a result of my designing the single, they sold 100,000 copies or whatever through the TV ad campaign. And I got a platinum record for working on it. And I also designed a little 3d cover of all things must pass and i got to do that interview promotional disc with george harrison so i kind of my friends say you you wished your way onto the getting involved with that record you liked it so much it's like when you think about something over and over and over and it happens you know um i like the record so much and i collected it for so long that i became uh, involved in it which was cool so that's my pride and joy i I went to Capitol one day and I saw a big platinum album for All Things Must Pass and it was for uh, Eric Clapton. And there was another one for Ken Scott, who was the engineer. And I looked at these things and I was like, wow, look at those, that's amazing. And uh, a week later they called me in and I had one. They made me one. And I could, you made me one? They said, you worked on the record. We made five of these and you got one. So that's my pride and joy. I guess that's I guess that's a pretty easy answer. I got a somebody gave me a platinum record of the first uh, or the second Faster Pussycat album, but it's it, that's not as cool. <laughs> Close. <though. laughs> With all due respect to Faster Pussycat, um, all right, I'll let you. <laughs> uh, I'll let you choose if you want to take a crack at the uh, the question that I posed prior, fly on the wall, or we can wrap up with. Um, I'm gonna. I, I have a, a trivia question about the Beatles, and I want to see if you can answer. Oh well, what? Ask me the trivia question. Okay. This may be easy for a, a, a man of your stature and background, uh, but um, uh, released as a promo single in 1964, a, a track, a single, I think it was a standalone, uh, produced by Phil Spector. Um, the vocalist was Bonnie Joe Mason, and the song was called Ringo, I Love You. Does this mean anything to you so far? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and uh, Bonnie Joe Mason would later become famous under a different name. Yeah, Cher. Cher, that's exactly right. Okay, of course. That I've... song was and that song was co-written by Phil Spector and a guy named Vinnie Poncia, who would later go on to be Ringo's co-writing 
partner, his song co-writing partner, Vinny Poncia. So in essence, Vinny Poncia once wrote a song called Ringo, I Love You, and then became Ringo's song partner, songwriting partner, which is interesting because Ringo could say, Vinny, you wrote that song about loving me in 1964. <laughs> right. What's up with that? Yeah, Bonnie Joe Mason, produced by Phil as well. Um, yeah. uh, we can wrap this up. How, 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 long, how long is this show going to keep going? Will you be there for the duration? Oh, I'll be, I'll be here till I'm, till I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, if I could be a fly on the please, yeah, on the wall or in a in the table or wherever. Um, mm-hmm. I actually heard this interview, but I still would have loved to have been there for it. And that was uh, a friend of ours by the name of Chip Douglas, who worked with the Monkees. He was kind of the fifth Monkey. Uh, he produced their records and stuff, worked with them. Uh, he has a cassette tape of uh, three of the Beatles, no Ringo, of this meeting that they had in 1969. And the reason I know about this tape was he, Chip wanted to possibly sell it at one point, but he wanted documentation of the date. He wanted me to listen to it and see if I could tell him the date. And what it was, was it was a recording of a meeting between all the Beatles, no Ringo. Ringo was sick, so they made a cassette so they could give it to Ringo to listen to the meeting. But the meeting was fascinating because it was, we figured out, the first week of September 1969, and it was the three Beatles basically discussing the future of the Beatles. And in this meeting, John and George are gung-ho, positive, all about the Beatles, and Paul is kind of the negative grumpy one, which is the complete opposite in reverse of how we pictured the Beatles at the breakup of the Beatles that time where Paul wanted to keep the band going and John and George were kind of sick of it, sarcastic and blah, blah, blah. But when you hear this this tape, it's the other way around and John's talking about the Beatles Christmas, making a Christmas record, blah, blah, blah. And what's really fascinating about this conversation that I got to listen to was that the day after or two days after was when John told Paul he was going to leave the Beatles and break up. So here's this meeting where John is still into being the Beatles. And then two days later, he quits the Beatles. And the reason he quit the Beatles was because he got asked to play this concert in Toronto, which became the live piece in Toronto album. And John, in his mind, couldn't continue with the Plastic Ono band unless the Beatles were really done with because he didn't want to do two things. So that made that meeting that I heard a tape of that I wished I was there for the last meeting by the Beatles while they were still the Beatles, because after that meeting, they would have been broken up, though nobody really knew that. So I would have loved to have been there because that was it was the most fascinating conversation, but I can't picture what they were looking and how they what they were you know the whole body language thing it was really fascinating because john and george were like positive and like loving the beatles at this point and paul was like telling george you know his songs haven't been good up until the abbey road album you're starting to get good now and he was like it was really a weird weird vibe and I just wished I could have seen it. So that's the answer to that question. That's a, it's a solid. I mean, is that audio generally available or is that still? No, in it's completely wow. not available. And I got to listen to it before I listened to it. You know, Chip is going, you have no tape recordings, right? Because 
he, it was this rare tape and he still has it. And to this day, he wants to, you know, sell it or whatever. And he really can't because Yoko was in the meeting and, uh, you know, you can't, you can't really try to auction something off with people that are still alive. You know, Paul would sue and Yoko would sue. So it's, he's never sold it. It's never, he's never done anything with it, but I got to listen to it, which was one of the more fascinating experiences I've ever had was to listen to this because no one had ever heard it before. Well, I'm assuming he has a digital backup of this cassette. He had, there were two cassettes of it. One was uh, in a house that was, that got burned down and he's got the only, the only known copy of it. Wild. Wild. Well, thank you for joining me. You must hear from people all the time. Now, I didn't I didn't know about the the story of you and all things must must pass. So it's nothing new to you to have become an actual part of the story of the Beatles, but you you are keeping as much as as much I mean, Paul McCartney, Ringo, sure. But beyond that, arguably even more than Yoko, you are keeping this thing alive and into the present. You must meet grown-ups now who who consider themselves huge Beatles fans who were exposed to the Beatles because it is such a family-friendly program that you do because and obviously it's the Beatles music but you were the conduit you were the 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 literal I'll use the word literally because it is little you were the medium that turned thousands of people onto the Beatles you must meet those people all the time and how good that must feel what's wild is when you meet you know I'll do these live we, we do live broadcasts from the hard rock once a month and we're at Morongo Casino this weekend uh I mean you know 20-year-old girls that say, I've been listening to you since I'm five years old. And you're like, wait a minute. Wow, oh yeah, I've been doing the show for 22 years, you know, and that blows my mind. You know, I listened to you when I was a little girl and they're graduating college. Really? Yeah, you my dad had you on every Sunday, and now we listen, and you're like, wow, that's you know, I don't really ever think of that. And then when you meet somebody like that, it kind of opens your eyes, like, wow. Great. <laughs> well, congratulations and keep it up. Um, enjoy the rest of the, the 40th anniversary celebration of Breakfast Thank with you. the Beatles. And people can find out everything I'm sure they need to know about the show at breakfastwiththebeatles.com. Yeah. We Terrific. got Ringo on the show this Sunday. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for your time, Chris. Thank you, Michael. Well, folks, that was the show. I hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly... I hope that you, at some point in your life, love something as much as Chris Carter loves the Beatles. And I do mean that sincerely. I'll remind you, before you make your way out of here, that there is a Patreon-exclusive deep dive on the classic Beatles album, Revolver, that uh, I invite you to, to check out whether or not you are one of my patrons. It's open for free to everybody right now. The classic rock Beatles Revolver episode is waiting for you now at patreon.com slash Mike Talbot.